0: You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the ProSound Web Podcast Network. Signal to Noise is supported by Audix. Check out their new line of Pro Studio headphones and the A131 and A133 large diaphragm studio condenser microphones at audixusa.com. Alan and Heath has asked us to read this. Have you noticed that all good things come in threes? XLR, AES... Meat, Cheese, and Tortillas, Michael Lawrence, Chris Leonard, and Kyle Turnside, and now the Allen & Heath AHM Matrix family, AHM64, AHM32, and AHM16. 96 kHz FPGA-powered sonic powerhouses for projects of all sizes. Who says matrices have to be boring? Not us. We've never said that. Kyle said it once, but we proved him wrong. Check them out today.
1: Welcome to the Signal to Noise podcast. Maybe you've listened before, maybe you haven't. You know, maybe this is your first shot, so this is our our one chance to get this right um, tonight. Joined by my co-host, Chris Leonard. What's up? And Sam Boone is with us tonight. Hey! And Michael is still on tour with Volbeat and... So we'll probably get a check in. I hope you guys are checking up and watching and looking at the pictures and stuff. And the Discord's going crazy and. I don't know. Did I cover everything? I feel like I'm just covering everything right now. No,
2: yeah, it's uh, it's it's fun. You know, it's uh, having. There's a ton of questions that have been coming out about him being out there. The last two episodes, uh, we've had him, and then we had part of the audio crew, and then we'll eventually get, you know, um, uh, Denny and Pat uh, on here as well to keep talking about it. So it's uh, yeah, it's fun times. It's uh, I, I like the conversations that it's driving because people are just asking questions so if again i've been stressing this on each episode if you're not in our discord that's the only place that michael actually interacts and he's the one that's way smarter than just about any of us um and so if you want to be able to ask him questions directly jump in the discord otherwise if you ask the questions on facebook all i'm going to do is ask michael and then copy and paste his answers into there so there's <laughs> that
3: <laughs> yeah pretty much and by the way chris is not on tour with volby once oh, again my i know it's hard to believe guys but uh it's, he's, he's still yeah. not there
1: He's barely at home, but he's not on that tour.
2: (laughs) Both statements are true. So, Kyle, what do we uh, we got today?
1: Man, I feel like it was years ago. It was like 2006, wasn't it? Or earlier than that. I forgot. So I did uh, a thing in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, um, and... It was uh, with Fall Up Boy at the arena there, and Dan Sue, our tour manager at the time, uh, went to school there, had classes with Mark, and found out that he did a bunch of my favorite band's records or recorded at his studio when he worked there, and he did audio classes and studio work in Champagne played in bands um he came out to a show and brought some of his kids to hang out for the day so i'd take him through the rig and we walked the arena and we just kind of headed off from there and then we started doing um the aes student summit at webster university we got on some of the same panels um uh, mark has i'd say got one of the greatest jobs ever he's the director of operations down at the blackbird's studios and academies right yeah so you work in the studios part and, uh the academy and uh, it's good to have you on because I think you have stories from every bit of this realm you're 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 trying the book you're writing is going to be incredible like I don't even know where to start um, let's do you want to start in champagne sure or do you want to go back further
4: yeah I didn't actually mention that I started that I also did uh, live sound anyway thanks for having me on I'm so glad to be here <laughs> flattered. So thanks. Uh, Where do you want to start? The beginning?
1: Uh, I kind of want to know the background. Like, I I don't know anything before 2006, except for things that you've said and talked about. So how did you get into live audio? I mean, obviously you play in bands, so musician first.
4: Yeah, I grew up in this college town, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, where the University of Illinois is, which has always had a great music scene and continues to Uh, My dad was a scientist. My mother was a journalist and author. And uh, if you put science and portraiture together, you get record making. So uh, I was just always fascinated by technology. And I had a recording device before I had a playback device. My my parents bought me a tape recorder before I had a record player when I was seven or eight years old. So I spent more time recording, uh, you know, up to the age for a couple years later when I got a record player. Um, And then... took up various instruments unsuccessfully because I didn't have the attention span to actually practice. And then I discovered the bass guitar, which takes no practice to make noises (laughs) on.
1: What, Uh, what what music inspired you at that moment? Like what record did you listen to and go, Oh my God, this is the, this is what, why I do what I do.
4: Well, it's funny uh, because there, there were a number of those turning point moments, you know, and really early on it was Mozart and Bach and stuff like that. And the, the, funny but embarrassing story is that the way i got into rock and roll is my parents brought the easy Rider home soundtrack home and oh, said here kid this is this rock and roll stuff you you should listen to it um but you know it's pretty much the same answer as everybody else who's old like me that makes records which it was the beatles you know that was really the stuff that stuck with me and i don't know if it was the screaming girls you know what ratio of screaming girls to great music it was but you know, I, th- I think that was that and just the fascination with everything. I, you know, I think a lot of people that do what we do, uh, and maybe this isn't the case anymore, but at least people my age that do what we do, would, would take all their family's technology apart and then <laughs> get some of it back together, but not all of it. <laughs> yes. I, I just thought of this this second, but you know, it's a, it's a problem with having no user serviceable parts in modern technology. You don't have a radio you could take, open up and electrocute yourself with
1: boxes of cable boxes boxes of cable everywhere
3: i mean you can try i've I've definitely taken things apart i shouldn't have and uh (laughs) you know the downside is it's just i think potentially a lot harder to put them back together
4: (laughs) yeah Uh, but that you know that's at the basis of think of everything we do and all the different things we do is uh, or at least for me is a sense of curiosity and a sense of wonder how it all works and when i say how it all works i don't just mean the technology but the, the human parts of it, you know, in the process. So anyway, I started playing bass guitar and played in every imaginable kind of band, you know, at a time where there was a lot of work for uh, terrible musicians. You know, you could play in VFWs and holiday inns and, you know, fraternity parties and being in a college town, there was, you know, ba- there were a lot of bars and restaurants and so forth. So doing all of that stuff, which is also something that i I hope people still get the chance to do, which is, you know, to get in a in a van and drive off and, and have all the experience of being chased by Dobermans and, you know, having <laughs> this breakdown in the middle of nowhere and all of that. Um, did that for quite a while and then, you know, uh, played all the way through college, got a weird degree uh, where I essentially studied everything for four years. And as uh, soon as I got out, I was heading for law school, but we started a recording studio that was seemed, it was just really fun, and I really loved it, and, uh, and I guess I started to, in a rare moment of lucidity, I said to myself that, you know, rather than being miserable as an attorney and having fun playing music when I could, maybe i would just skip the miserable part and go straight to the having fun and making there, music yeah. part. Yeah. And You know, it's worked for the last 42 years, so. it's <laughs> you know, awesome. Uh, so that's, that's what we did. I took deferred enrollment in law school, which I'm still deferring, even though I now work in courtrooms, which is another story. Uh, and we had this little funky studio with a bunch of uh, hand-me-down gear from Bill Putnam, who started Universal Audio in, in Los Angeles and other studios. And we just, a bunch of kind of post-hippies put this sort of collective studio together, and they all had electrical engineering jobs. And I had had a weird liberal arts degree. And so I got elected to run the studio and also did live sound. So I was a monitor engineer at the, like the big club in Champaign and got to work with, you know, all
1: sorts of people. Right into the snake, Chris Leonard. That's totally. right. That you're in, that you're in. That's
4: right. And that was cool. And was amazing. You know, I had one experience where uh, the bass player for JB Hutto, who's opening for George Thorogood was in a car accident. And so I went from monitor engineer to bass player this was the night that John Lennon was assassinated. Oh, wow. Uh It was a wow. strange night. And then they, I just went on the road with them. And so then I got to this moment of they asked me to join their band. And am I going to leave the studio and move out to the East Coast to be a musician? Which J.B. Hutto was a really cool 50s blues side player. But the band doubled as the backup band for Nico from Velvet Underground. So they were playing hmm. Chicago slide blues and you know Nico music. <laughs> Uh, but I decided to stay and work on the studio and, you know, a long story since then, but, um, just have been recording everything I could possibly record since then and accidentally stumbled into teaching. And that's my main job. Now, um, uh, I, we have this, well, I could tell you the whole story, but uh, teaching and then <laughs> writing books and testifying in courtrooms about audio matters
2: and, uh, stuff. I'm going to go right for the juicy thing. Let's, let's, let's jump to the forensics thing and then we can come back to like recording sure. just because that's, you know, that's definitely something we haven't talked about yet is uh, audio forensics.
4: Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's a career. A lot of people don't even realize exists, uh, but you know, anytime there's legal action uh, somebody has to testify as to what happened or didn't happen. And uh, there are many v- varieties of forensic audio uh, engineers, engineers, or experts i i tend to specialize in certain things my specialty mainly is uh testifying as to whether or not sampling has taken place in a record Ooh! so i reverse engineer records and identify if they're samples and you can imagine the millions of dollars that can ride on that uh we've got a little less work doing it now because people have kind of wised up and are just licensing them partly because i like to think we did such a good job of You know uh, hunting them down and making them pay not really but you know working for attorneys who work for artists or publishing companies that kind of thing Uh, but i've also done a fair amount of um, work for law enforcement or uh you know governmental agencies shall we say and um other stuff like that you know defending people in noise cases or and i've done a few criminal cases where you know anytime uh, more and more these days when you have like a ring doorbell or you have cell phones everywhere uh, an audio recording becomes evidence, and somebody has to figure out: has it been edited? Has it been doctored? Is it legitimate? How many hands has it passed through? What does it actually indicate? And uh, you know the, and they you have to be able to be smart enough to figure all that out, to be able to express it in a report, and to be able to defend your position when you're being hounded by a highly paid attorney in a room with a court stenographer who's writing down everything you say. And if you contradict yourself or you make a misstep, you could lose the case. And that's a fair amount of pressure. So it's a highly paid job, it's, which is the kind of the reason I do it, although I enjoy the, uh, the Sherlock Holmes you know, uh, you know, detective part of it as well.
1: It blows my mind. He doesn't go to law school to play in bands <laughs> and start a studio. And now he's back in the courtroom doing stuff that like the attorney can't even do. He's already, that's amazing.
4: It it gets weird because we're making sort of almost attorney like level pay to do it, which is really nice. Are you um, hiring? And, and, uh, no. And in many cases, <laughs> uh, I'm not doing as much of this work as I did just because I can't really leave the school. Um, and it is stressful work, but it's interesting work. I do, you know, a couple of cases a year typically these days, but I used to do a lot more. But, um, you know, in, in some cases, the attorney doesn't know what to ask and everything revolves around technical issues. And mm. so I'm in a room with a court stenographer. It's us on one side of the table, me and an attorney. And on the other side, you know, or, or attorneys. On the other side, is attorneys and another witness. And I'm essentially sort of cross-examining them indirectly because they, the attorney doesn't know what to ask. So I'm giving, I'm feeding them the questions. And, you know, this is really where you establish the facts of the case, but you know, what I like to say about this is, which is the truth is, uh, I'm a little different from a lot of expert witnesses who basically, many of them, they will spin things as much the way of the, as they can of the people who are paying them naturally. Right. And uh, they may even, Cook stuff up or testify to things that aren't correct, and I have an interesting strategy, which is I just don't take cases where I can't prove that I to myself that I'm right and telling the truth, and that makes it that puts me in a pretty undefeatable situation. Uh, That's cool. Because I just tell them what I know and
2: why and how. What what what's the um what's some of the common things that you're listening for. Uh, or looking at to tell when something's been docketed? Or are there like a common thread or something that's like, oh, yep, there, there it is, there it is. Like, And what is that?
4: Mm-hmm. Good question. Uh, so they're the technical bits where I can actually, uh, e- keep in mind that when I started doing this, isotope didn't exist, which has made life mm. a lot easier. But uh, through various sneaky things like phase reversal, I could expose the, I could strip the, the 808s and the beats off of it and expose the original sample. And so the the smoking gun, the holy grail, from my point of view, is if I can figure out where they sampled it from, which comes from using my ears or and maybe suggestions from whoever's, uh my client is, and I can expose a sample, if I can get in and show that the waves are parallel and exact, that's unassailable. But, you know, a lot of times like I could say reverse engineering. They may have sped it up or slowed it down or EQ'd it or they may have taken off vinyl or tape or whatever. So... That's part of it. But I have a I, I make a what I think is a compelling argument that doesn't seem obvious, I think, to people. You know, it's nice to have graphs and waveforms and all that sort of thing, and it looks impressive. And, you know, it does prove things. But you have to keep in mind that the people are going to make the decision of this is going to be a judge or a jury. And they don't necessarily know what amplitude and phase are. And they right. and they're going to you know, I'm going to try and explain it as well as I can. Being a teacher helps with that. Um so the part that is easy to overlook, but it's very powerful. Is if I can isolate the uh, the sample and the thing that was sampled, and I can play them in a in succession where I'm flipping back and forth between them, mm. and then you can hear you know either I've isolated and it just you you just go okay that's this is obviously the same thing because it sounds like the same thing, or we're flipping back and forth between one and the other, and you can hear whatever the hip hop song added on top of the sample, but you could just hear the sample running straight through it. Um, that should be worrisome to the other side because, you know, the jury's going to go, yeah, charts looks very impressive. I don't know, there are charts on both sides. But if, if they play the sound examples and they could just hear it, you know, they're just yep. going to go, you know, that person took that person's music. Um, it's kind of accidentally I've ended up mostly on the side of the songwriters and publishers whose music is being sampled as opposed to the people who are defending against gotcha. somebody who's claiming their stuff is sampled. But And I've done a bunch of other...
2: Stuff some of it pretty weird. So, you're, <laughs> is your middle name Shazam, or are you like Shazam before Shazam was the uh, name,
4: so. <laughs> I, I wish it's Danger, Mark Danger Ruble.
2: <laughs> yes.
4: <laughs> I wish. No, my middle name is Burl, B U R R I L L. I'm named after my dad's uncle, Burl Crone, after whom Crohn's disease is named.
1: Oh, that's always interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh. If that's not weird enough for you. Yeah. <laughs> it is pleasant. So
3: it was thoroughly interesting.
1: Um, the Pogo Studios thing, mm. um, you did a lot of recording there. I mean, f- I'm gonna drop names Allison Krauss, uh, Ludacris, Fall Out Boy, Henry Kaiser, um, Jeff Coffin, Jay Bennett. I mean, there's just like you had to have something that inspired you at that studio, like whether it was the first one that you got out or an artist that you really liked, talk about an artist or the thing that you went through for your, your recordings out of Pogo.
4: Any artist or just one that stands out or
1: your standout, whether it be your first middle, something that you were really like, Oh my God, I'm doing this thing and you got it out timeless.
4: Yeah. the, The funny thing is, and I really mean this, that, I I just love every minute of doing it and every client is is really important to me. I think for some people they go, "Yeah, I'm working with a regular a local band and, you know, but I really can't wait till I get in the big time and work with somebody that's big and famous." And I uh, sincerely the things that I find most inspiring are working with a high school band. Yeah. When at the end of it, they feel like rock stars and they're high-fiving and they're totally excited and thrilled and you know they're going to take the record home listen to it a thousand times in a row and it might yep. be the thing that changes their lives. To me that's more important. I it's fun to work with famous people and, you know, but I I was in a small town. Almost all of my work was local bands and, you know, that kind of thing. It's nice to put a few names on your biography, which is kind of what happens if you just keep doing it long enough in a way, you know,
1: I, I was hoping you'd say hum because they are a local band and it was one they, of my hum it, is amazing.
4: I, that was a, a great joy getting to work with them, partly because it's one of the few major label things I've done where we actually had, you know, the time and budget and, you know, talent uh, to really bear down and make a record the way we wanted to. It was, just, that was a great experience and fun. I met a lot of people and, but you know, one of the parts of being a recording engineer, and this is probably true for live engineers, is uh, having a, a reasonable sense of your importance to the process. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I just feel lucky to get to work with anyone, especially somebody like that. And if the record is great, it's not, I didn't make it that way. If anything, hopefully I didn't screw it up or contributed something to it. But Did you produce any of them? I did. I produced uh, Downward is Heavenward, that record. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of producing. And, you know, these days I'm mainly teaching and then working on this book. But I do, uh, you know, a fair amount of recording at, at, Black, at in Blackbird Studio, mainly in the context of the school. And I've been doing a lot of stuff lately working with a guy named Jim Lauderdale, who's a really great singer-songwriter and various other people.
1: Let's get okay, to so- school. You, you guys want to get to school? Sam, what do you want? To, did I cut you off?
3: No, you're good. I just I really want to ask about your mindset, right? Like you've done all these different things, right? You've you've been a producer, you're a recording engineer, you started in Live Sound, you're a musician. How has your mindset changed over the years as you've taken on each role? And kind of what are your common threats? Like how do you think about this? Because you not only play music, but you then construct and then deconstruct it.
4: Yeah. I you know, I have I have something I call the unified theory of art, you know, or, or just, uh, it, which is, I think that creativity and interest or curiosity or um, just the drive to want to experience it and the love for the process of love to be around people and, and the love for music itself, which is, I think one of the most amazing things that humans are capable of, it, that's a common thread. And so whether you apply... A love of that to writing about it or to making it or to teaching somebody about how to make it you know or to be there when it's happening live with an audience it to me it's it's really all part of the same the same process and uh and all of it informs the rest of it it's really useful uh i think everybody who works at a studio should have the experience of being live at sound engineer because you have to be fast you don't have an undo control. <laughs> you can't stop the show and, and try to figure stuff out. It's it's really, you know, it's really important. And because in the recording studio we're not directly connected with the audience, right? We're performing for an unseen audience. We, to understand, you know, either from being a performer and or helping perform as a live sound engineer, it's really useful to get to see that connection and feel how it works and also know what doesn't work. You know, to be able to see when somebody takes a wrong turn or something like that, like this silly band that I've been in since nineteen eighty. Uh, we're, you know, we're not great musicians, uh, but we're great, um, and we're not even entertainers. We know what our job is, and our job is making people happy, and we do a wonderful job of that because we can read audiences, and we can have a great time ourselves. And so, to be connected with the the central joy of music. And in making it and then the joy in all the things that go around facilitating that and trying to bring it in the world and help it be as good as it can be i mean that's what drives me to educate people because i hope to be able to impart some of the ways that's been done in the past and i hope to help them you know really create a, their own philosophy of what it is that they're doing and, and um why i think a lot of people are Overly concerned about the particulars, they're concerned about the how. You know, okay. If, if I only if I use this compressor and set it this way, it's going to be good. If I use this plug-in, this is going to be good. If I only had this thing, then then it would be good. And it's they have it backwards. You have to figure out what you're trying to do in the first place. So, and that's where the artistic vision comes from, right? And then you can easily, not easily, but then you can derive everything from that, right? If you know what your job is, like I say, in my band, we know what our job is. It's not to not make mistakes. It's not to play perfectly. It's not to look cool. You know, our job is to get up and feel joy and lose ourselves in music and help everybody else do the same thing. It's one of the finest things that could possibly happen.
2: Yes. You know,
4: love it.
1: That's that feeling, man. Losing it. There's nothing like it.
2: I have two directions I want to go. What's the second one? (laughs) (laughs) The first one I wanted to do is you've already kind of touched on it is I, I wanna talk about the divide that was between recording engineers and live engineers and how that gap is, is being closed. But mm-hmm. I think first you you, you talked about um, why you like to educate, so let's go why you like to educate what you're doing with education and I have a feeling that that's gonna get there in terms of closing that gap between live and, and recording engineers.
3: Yeah, cause I have some questions on that too.
2: <laughs> sure. <laughs>
4: So why do I, uh, I mean, I live to educate. Right. Uh, so, uh, it, uh, so how did you
2: get into, and how, like, how did you get into the, you know, the education side of things? Yeah. Completely by accident.
4: Uh, I've been, I've been recording, you know, for probably 10 years in with home recordings and four tracks, that sort of thing. But we don't, I, I'd had the studio open for five years in 1985 and, um, a guy in Champagne who was way more organized than I'll ever be, did all the paperwork to, start a recording class at the local community college. And then, because I was nice to him, rather than feeling competitive with him, and you know, uh, I would invite him and his classes over to my studio, and I would go to his place and teach them. And because, and I think this is an important point for everybody, because I was, I wanted to build community and not compete and try to build myself up, when he moved away, he called me up and said, do you want to take over this class? And I thought, well, that would be nice. And uh, the college would pay some rent for the studio, and that would be a nice way to stabilize an uh, otherwise unstable uh, business. And it turns out I loved it uh, because, again, that unified theory thing, I mean, there's a certain aspect of performing to teaching to just try and keep people's interest and, and impart mm-hmm. things in ways that are Amen. exciting and different, you know, and uh, and then having the just all the other ex- experiences that I've had. Um you know, as you know, there's no way to learn something like having to explain it. If you have to put it into words, and people ask you questions that you never really thought of, you also have to learn to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. (laughs) But, uh, but it's a tremendous way to learn. and It's a tremendous way to have to frame things for oneself. And then that helps you help other people to create a frame. Um, So, of course, things have changed a lot since 1985 and no well yeah <laughs> but uh, yeah but it's you know it's it, it's changed a lot in that the way that i learned was uh learning with very simple tools and trying to make the most of them and then we'd save up some money and we'd get a, a spring reverb and that was the most amazing thing in the world and uh, we'd try every possible thing you could do with one spring reverb and then we'd save up some money and then we'd get like one microphone and and that we try it on everything. You know what I mean? It, it was building something slowly from a very limited toolkit. And that's actually a great way to learn. And it's a great, it's an interesting way to teach if you get people to mix something with just faders and pan pots. Uh, but the way that people, even when they come to us, the stuff they've learned, it's or just the world they live in is a kind of an excess of options, especially in the recording world. There's a, you, everything is accessible. They can have a hundred Pultex EQs when all the great records that everybody loved in the 60s, 70s. They had two Pultex in a studio or something like that. Uh, it's a different process choosing from a, a a limitless palette as opposed to building something up from a small number. So it's it's changed a great deal. And to get to what you were saying, th- there is absolutely uh, a lot more overlap these days between live and the recording and of course the whole live streaming and everything that's happened over these last couple of years is literally both uh, you know you have people doing live performance from a studio the you know when i was your age back in the 1920s the uh <laughs> the you know the, the, the pa you know we had to make a pa out of paper it in the sun no uh <laughs> you know the, the pas were these sort of brute force things when i was a kid and they would i'm serious like they would frequently catch on fire at shows you know i'd go to then they're like oh look the pa's on fire and then everybody would stand around while they fixed it and there was roadies swarming around <laughs> it was very primitive brute force ground stacked you know a million crown amps um and and just sort of straight ahead and the studios were fairly sophisticated in comparison if you go into a modern studio like Blackbird where I am now, the funny thing about it is it's pretty much unchanged from a studio of about 1978. We got a Neve console, there's a tape machine that may or may not be used. You see a bunch of and Levis heavy sixes. Um a modern, you know, home studio is actually more advanced than what we're using in the you know, su- supposedly upper echelon where uh <laughs> but uh but now the live world is more sophisticated certainly than what we're doing in these big allegedly world-class studios you know hmm. you've got networking and you've got room analysis and you've got a bunch of wireless and you've got uh, a bunch of digital stuff and recallables things and full automation and uh you know all of that it's it's a it's a different world where uh you have to be adaptable to all of that kind of thing so
2: so, w- w- would you say is it fair to say, from a mixing standpoint only, not system tech and not IT and and and, and all that, <clears throat> producing the difference between what used to be or was a mix engineer in the studio versus a live mix engineer um, is the. The, the crux of that difference is that what 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 live guys had to do to make things work versus the time and space that a recorded like i i feel like there was just this divide of like oh, i'm a studio guy i can't you know and like man he's you know he's a he's a studio guy he, there's no way he could do this live show vice versa right so what what a, is it is it just the technology and tools that live has now that has closed that gap or what what was that where was that gap from a from a mixing standpoint of why someone couldn't cut, you know, you know the the upper echelon studio guys, you know, live guys would show throw shade and be like, ah, oh, this guy can't come out here and do this. He's only a studio guy. What what was it about that?
4: My offhand feeling is is two areas. So one is the technological area. You know, if you have more in your monitors and you don't have to contend with the m- monitor wedges bleeding off and the rooms are better controlled and the systems work better and that kind of thing. So it's a little bit more of, of a similar process to a studio where it's it's better controlled hmm. and you can think more about, you know, you're just less fighting acoustics and, and uh, constantly breaking equipment, you know, and you can focus on the things that people focus on in the studio, like balance and musicality and emotion and that sort of thing. Um, so that's one. I, I, I think that uh, there, you know, there's just more infrastructure than when they were, yeah. you know, when bands were touring and playing high school gymnasiums or what have you. Um, but the other difference that probably still exists is a kind of a temperamental mindset. I think some people just, uh, you know, for myself, I, I love mixing live, and I like the adrenaline of it. Personally, I, I like the kind of going down the rabbit hole studio mentality where we can experiment with things, we can take wrong turns, uh, we, we have some room to, to back out, uh, you know, and some people, so I think some of the studio people just don't quite have the, the, uh, the, the stomach or feel for the, either the lifestyle or just that process. Um, of course, you know, as we know, many shows are kind of involved just playing back a pre-recorded thing and a lot of lip-syncing, <laughs> so it is it's less live than a recording studio sometimes. Sure. Um, and then you know, there's overlap in the sense that we have people, graduates of our school, for example, who go out with artists and are recording all their shows
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, for for future reference, or we have people that are uh, you know running the Pro Tools for the playback portion of it. So again, there's a lot of overlap, but, but I think. It's just uh, so I think a certain amount of it is temperamental, and maybe just how people, uh, or what are people comfortable with, and what they're intellectually suited to. Yeah, makes
2: sense.
3: I think it's really interesting. I had a conversation with a buddy of mine who's a producer out in Nashville, and he, like, over the pandemic, had started mixing broadcasts for his local church. But he's like a studio guy; like, was a live musician, is a crazy great guitar player. But we were talking about it, and I was, and he said. You know, when I'm, when I'm mixing broadcast, when I'm mixing live, I find myself hearing all these things I'd want to change in my studios, if only I had more time, if only it wasn't structured like this. And I, I think it's really interesting because for me, right, like my favorite part about a live show is like, I can't do it again, like for better or worse, like it is what it is and it, you've you got to live with it. Whereas in the studio, right, you, you can overdub, you can go back, you can press record however many times you want to press record as long as you have studio time to do it, I'm sure. Um, have you seen any just mentality differences? Because I know that Blackbird has both a studio and live track. Correct. So how does that kind of work? What, what are your thoughts on that?
4: We have some people who do both. And I think that's good because for one thing, our program is quick at six months. And so it's nice to get the reinforcement. Uh, but I think uh, the temperament thing is important. I see some people in the recording school and I go, they're going to be better off live. They're just, they're energetic and they want to, they need to travel and they need some excitement. It was part of it. It's just like different level of stimulus that people are into. Yeah. And so people do both and really move well from one to another, including our beloved leader, John McBride, the owner of Blackbird, who you know, goes out and mixes Martina McBride shows and loves to be in the studio. Uh, our beloved friend, Vance Powell, the amazing engineer producer, who's also a, a live sound engineer and, he said something funny along those lines, which is the thing he likes about live shows is that the the musicians don't call him up and go, yeah, you know that gig we played two weeks ago last Tuesday? I think the snare drum needs to be a little bit brighter. Like, <laughs> too
0: late. Uh,
4: but of course, you know, now that everything's being recorded, you do kind of have to live with it a little bit. I, I also was a front of house mixer for an a cappella group. Uh, it was interesting. They Fun. were doing... Uh, New music, like uh strange music in in strange tunings, and they were do, like throat singing and doing all this stuff, but we were playing like the Louisville Zoo and we played the Utah State Fair with this kind of new york uh intellectual music, and amazingly, it went over, but that was an interesting job for me because uh my job was to make the p a disappear
0: hmm.
4: right, just to make it feel that the audience feel like suddenly they just developed super hearing and that they could hear somebody that was a hundred feet from them as if they were 20 feet from them. And that was a different thing to do on the kind of rock and roll PAs that we sometimes ended up with, where we're playing with some some band, we have some local PA. It's an interesting, uh, you know, uh, a different approach, which I also got to do, you know, working in universities, I got to record a lot of acoustic music and symphony orchestras and big bands and string quartets and and also do sound for them. and And that's really useful i think one of the i just did this a couple weeks ago one of the best things that i'm able to do with our school is i took my students to the symphony orchestra hall and we just sat in the the hall and listened to the symphony rehearse and it's a dress rehearsal so you uh you walk in and there's a bunch of people in t-shirts and jeans holding instruments and then all of a sudden the baton goes up and just the most unbelievably beautiful thing you can imagine comes out the room and I have to explain to them beforehand that even though there's a PA in there, it's not amplified, right? I think it's really important because when I was talking about having a goal and a vision and knowing what you're trying to do, I think for us to, uh, understand the gap between what real live acoustic sound can be and what uh, amplified sound, whether it's recorded or not can be there's, we still, you know, we still have a long way to go. If you look at the ads for the earliest the 1890s and it says it's just like having Caruso in your living room and it still isn't you know we've had 130 years of this technology and we still have a long way to go to to get it to be as compelling and as emotional as being in the room with something that's that incredible yeah do you make sure that your students feel
1: your passion? Like, can you look at those kids when you're sitting there at the symphony and go, man, that one's getting it. Like, yeah. I mean, you've yeah. developed a feel for all the the folks that come through your, your classes. Like it, it must be so rewarding just to even see that or be a part of it and feel it. Like, cause, cause I, I remember when you yeah. brought the, the students out to my show, that was one of the things like, the two kids that stayed were like mesmerized and knew what they were wanting to talk about. And you, you seem to be like your teaching style. I I, I, I want you to tell me what you do for your students that makes a difference for them.
4: Well, I don't know. I, uh, I rant and rave like I'm doing now. Uh, and I get all excited about it and I get all caffeinated and you know yeah. that sort of thing but <laughs> I, you know but i i am passionate about it and i don't hide it um you know and i and i tell them that people tell that people say that there are all sorts of things wrong and with you know there's there's a lot of complaining about everything all the time and some of it's justified you know but oh the problem is this or that or the record companies or spotify or you know the public or whatever there's a lot of complaining and uh i bring in a certain number of veteran engineers and and there's a lot of that you know when i was your age and blah 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 and i tell them you know there is a problem in the music industry and the problem is pessimism uh you know if you're going to go into it um angry and bitter and and jaded that's, it's, then what fun is that you could, you could at least have a, a a more reliable job and be angry and bitter and jaded you know so uh, <laughs> i mean if, if you don't have joy for it especially at the beginning yes um, and I mean, I'm not kidding when I say that I love this and I look forward to getting to go to this incredible place. I mean, Blackbird Studios, like the Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory of Audio, you know, and getting to go there every day, getting to walk into a recording studio, and getting to walk into a room with people who aren't yet jaded and who are excited to be there is the best. So, you know, I don't have to put it on or psych myself up. I get more energy from doing it than I put into it. Um, but also, you know, I have my own ways and my own way of looking at things, and hopefully that helps them. But the other thing that I do is I bring a lot of different people in, and I expose them to a lot of different situations so that it may be somebody that has a different attitude or a different approach. And I should say, I mean, we have three other recording uh, instructors. It's not all me. And they spend a lot of time with them, and they're, you know, experienced and awesome and amazing attitudes and wonderful human beings. So luckily, they don't have to sit and listen to me about stuff for six months. Um, but you know I, I bring in and we just talked to dozens of people in, in the course of six months with every, everything from acousticians, musicians, obviously engineers, producers, designers. I bring in a counselor who talks about how to deal with human beings, which is the most important part. Uh, we talk to audiologists, we talk to you know um, And uh, you can when it happens like when those students, when you were kind enough to have those students come in and stand next to you and see how it worked, you can almost physically see when the light bulb goes on, and I lived for that. You know, and it happened at the Symphony Hall. I could see the ones who—I mean—they were kind of dazed. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if you're a hip hop kid or you're a rocker, or whatever, you know, when are you going to go to a symphony? You're going to feel out of place. You know, what do I have to wear a tuxedo? I don't know when to clap. <laughs> you know? uh, but but, to be brought in and to see people that look like ordinary people making something that 's sublime uh, oh just it it rewires their neurons and and some of them will never be the same and that's a you know it's a beautiful thing to get to do
2: i'm curious how quickly so you 've been teaching for a while how quickly do you identify the people who have it? and and you just know instantly that that person has it
4: i i gotta be honest it, it's about a minute
1: <laughs> <laughs> not even a week
4: no i mean you <laughs> you know you have to be tuned in to other people um and you have to be empathetic and that sort of thing um you could kind of tell i mean you could just tell by their their attitude and their body language and and so forth. I mean it doesn't mean that I dismissed everybody else. And there and I've seen people, you know, change in the course of 6 months to being sort of directionless and, and to having a, a clear goal or being really excited about something or or maybe, you know, um, figuring out that wow, this really isn't for me, which at least they didn't spend 10 years. Uh,
2: <laughs> that's that almost but, more that's almost more important <laughs> than <laughs> yeah. than the alternative, yeah.
4: Yeah. But um yeah, I, I almost feel guilty saying that in public because Uh, But it's really the truth. You could tell pretty quickly. And uh, I don't know exactly what it is, but you could just see when the spark is there. And you could tell by the ones who just extremely alert and alive and tuned in. And what what a pleasure it is when somebody like that comes into your life and you can help them a little bit and help them frame things. And, you know, part of my teaching is, I think, maybe a little frustrating for some people, which is it's not prescriptive. I don't say, this is the, how you make a kick drum, this is the only way to make a kick drum. I show them 10 different ways, 10 other engineers come in and show them 10 different ways, and then they have to figure it out, you know? Uh, or they have to go, wow, that that really worked. I'm gonna remember that, and then they take notes and that sort of thing. I'm trying to give them as many tools in their toolbox that, as possible for them to use then afterwards. I call it a freeze-dried education. They have a lot of experiences, some of which they may not even realize how important they are, I literally have people that like to call up 10 years later and go, "I got I find I got what you were talking about." You know, or you remember when George Massenburg came in and said this thing, "Now I get it." Um so some of these things are 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 delayed, but you're just trying to give them the tools to build their own attitude and their own approach and their own art.
1: It it's a marathon. Even yeah. even with the education, it's a marathon. That's for uh,
4: sure. No doubt. Sure. And you know, there there's the career and business part of it too and in my opinion in the unified theory building a career is building a life if you're lucky if your person is lucky enough to get to do what you love for living i mean there are people and i envy the people whose job is not their life that's just something they do but for the people who get to do what they love to do who are lucky enough to get to do what they love to do for living in my opinion in the unified theory it's the same creative processes that you would use to build a song or build a record or build a house or paint a painting or make a movie or raise a child, right? You're sort of raising your own child yourself. You, you don't understand what I mean. It It, it yeah. is that same dis- process of discovery and, um, and reevaluation and retooling and that yes. sort of thing. And so hopefully we can help them with that too, just to, try and find the direction and then the rest can f- flow from there.
3: Sure. And I, I really love how you talk about that and how you said, you know, it is a lot of it is a journey and a lot of it is a process, but, um, you know, on the flip side of that, right? Like, what do you wish you knew when you first started?
4: <laughs> it's an interesting question. I,
3: th- I think I wish
4: I'd been smarter. Uh, I'd known more about money and finances, to be honest. Um, you know, the I think the creative parts were there, uh, but I've, it took. You know, I I went to MBA school for uh, in between because I like, well, gee, here I'm running these arts organizations at a recording studio, and I have a degree in English literature. I should probably go study business so I can figure out how to run a business. And boy, MBA school was not the is not the, in those days was not the place to learn to be an entrepreneur. But mm. I think um, <laughs> that's what I wish I'd had were were more skills of just about how to deal with the nuts and bolts of creating a business the pitfalls uh how to deal with money how to invest money uh, how to charge how to chase people down (laughs) when they owe you money you know (laughs) Uh, that kind of thing because the creative stuff i think that just comes from your love for it Uh, and i don't really feel any differently about it than i did the first time i sat behind a console you're you're
1: letting your students be art students Mm -hmm. i mean that it's the best way to put it like sometimes you got to paint your own picture you know here's a whole bunch of different ways to do it how are you going to do it yeah and, and, and you're right over of stuff like a thousand plugins versus what you used to have or used to even it I, I think it all boils down to building from that triangle you know your source has to be good you have to know what you're doing at the very very beginning before you start and uh Those guys who used to hump around that speaker up on scaffolding or whatever, they had to do that too. And those pioneers made it capable for us to have this technology, like congruent between broadcast and studio and, um, seeing a lot of theater technology put into the consoles and, and the workflow of things as well. So it's an amazing journey. So you've been, how long have you been teaching for? 37 years so 37 years ago you had a student for a few years and they graduated and went somewhere who was your first student who like got where they wanted to go through your classing and
4: i i don't remember i know that one of my students from my very early days i think teaches at berkeley which makes me proud here here Um, yeah but uh, yeah, I mean, and you know, Dan Sue, I'm going to be showing him around Blackbird on Friday. I'm just, uh, very proud of him and love him very much. Um, oh, there are so many, and you know, some of them I just don't know uh, what what happened. Uh, I've, I've had a number of students that met other people that they married in my class. That makes me super happy. Uh, <laughs> that's but, awesome. Know, but you know, we have we've got people all over the world doing what they love to do, and that do you... I think that's a great thing.
1: And right. I'm sure that some of those people call and ask for that tip or that trick still. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: see, Yeah. They, they know I'm available. So, you know, I'm still advising people that studied with me 20 years ago I and mean, whether it's, you know, what mic do I get to do this or help? I'm at a career fork in the road, or they just need to be talked off the ledge. I'm, as long as I'm around, I'm available to, you know, to, to just listen or help.
1: Right. And And I think through this podcast, we're, we're gaining a lot of passion for what we're doing as well. And, and, by accident we kind of started this mentorship program and and basically one of my questions to you would be what what could the best thing that we could do to help people get where they needed to go just uh through through mentorship and classes and networking or or how would you lead them into the directive of the career after your classes
4: I think what you said, I, I believe, I mean, our our school is based, we call it mentorship-based education. It's not necessarily you know, knowledge-based or even necessarily experience-based. I mean, the, the experience is of getting to be around other people and soak in their their vision and their view. And part of it, I think, is what you said also is the communication and the community building. I'm a strong believer in that everybody gets farther if we all work together, and so to try and dispel any idea that it's that life or the world or a career is some sort of Darwinian struggle that you have to you know defeat your enemies and and climb a heap of the bones of your defeated you know uh, rivals to, so good, to be though. a success. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I just think, and there is that kind of a mindset, and I just think it's silly because if anything. If you succeed, then you're standing on the top of a pile of bones with nobody else there. Uh, And so I I think the process of building community uh, is how everybody does better. And I actually think that any single person can do better by making friends, serving other people, serving the art, and having a clear idea of what it is that they're actually trying to do. And that's something that you can't tell them. They have to find it. But if if they understand that that's the journey and they're around people who have come up with answers and manage to, you know, get away with what I do, which is not working for a living for long periods of time. Winning.
2: Well, we're, you we're, know. we're not meant to do life alone, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, I, all right. What, what have you learned about yourself through your years of education? Oh,
4: well, <laughs> so many things. What have I learned about myself? Uh, I, a lot of stuff that I can't do anything about, uh, that, you know, I, I tend to go, you've probably already figured this out. I tend to go on tangents and I, I used to try to control that. And now I just go on tangents to tell stories and yes. I think go for it. that is in the story, I, I think it actually works because instead of just impart, you know, I could get up and, and write a bunch of stuff on a blackboard and then make them write it down on a test, but I don't think that is the process of education. So it may be that, that tangential part of my personality, which I, it sort of bothers me sometimes. Oh. Uh, I think it's actually useful because the stories are illustrative, but also, you know, so if, in other words, if you're learning something rather than just learning a fact, if you have something to remember it by because of an experience, that's probably more useful. But also because, getting back to the unified theory, um, stories is, are, are how we live, right? Our, our life is a story that we tell ourselves and the rest of the world. And if you learn how to tell that story and how to build the story, you also know how to tell a story or build a story, whether it's a haiku, a novel, a song, a full-length movie, right? Uh, Our job or or a concert. You know, how do you keep somebody engaged and how do you pull them in and how do you get them to emotionally involve themselves into the experience of it? And And that's what a performance is. And so that's getting back to my idea of, you should really have an understanding of what you're really doing. Like what is your actual purpose? And that's part of the process of education. And it's easy to get led astray by a lot of other stuff. So if you think, gee, I'm a live sound engineer. My job is to twiddle knobs, right? It's like, no, that you twiddle knobs for a reason. Oh yeah. Okay. My job is to make sure everything works and doesn't break down. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a given, right? So whatever the undertaking, you need to spend time thinking about like for you, what is the true essence of what you're doing? The example I use with my students is I ask them and I'll ask you, um, if what's your, uh, what's your mission? If you have a restaurant, what what are you selling? What do you do? What's your, what's your product? Go
2: ahead. Oh, um, yeah, i mean you're, you're selling you're selling something someone's going to consume I, I i know where you're getting at your experience okay. the experience the, exper- yeah. I, I, the problem is yeah, i know the, the end experience. game here, so exactly the, the, so you right. you yeah, have it I, exactly right i know the so answers. they'll
4: so, so they'll say uh they'll say well i mean it's, you're there to sell food it's like you know you can eat at home and have exactly right. what you want and know that it's safe and and spend a lot less money right. any restaurant that goes into business thinking uh, my job is to sell
2: food will soon go out of business right there's or a there's, unless there's, there's they just cha- there's for a reason there's like yeah. right like every olive garden every applebees every whatever has a reason right because the music they play the way their servers are dressed what's on the wall okay. it is it it is a <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's an experience it's
4: consistently okay right yeah, yeah, yeah. and and consistently and, and predictably uh, okay so right. if that's you know so is like it's not so the the idea so the real job of a restaurant is to provide as you said an experience. And then the question is what kind of experience and the better you can understand that. So as I said with my band, we know our job isn't there to to not make mistakes or to uh, be precise or or to look cool. You know, we know that that it's to bring joy. Um, and it's the same thing with it with an I think everybody that's making music whether they're in a studio or live, you know, if you can impart emotion and mm-hmm. involve people and draw them into it. That is the job. And then all yes. the, you know, what tools do you do? Whatever is, what tools do you use? Whatever's at hand, how to use it in whatever way best supports whatever it is you're trying to impart.
3: Right. And when talking about the tools and talking about, um, I mean, even history and you being an educator, right? How do you think about or talk to students who may not know kind of where the industry has come from with technology? I mean, because you have my generation where, I started on digital, mm-hmm. like I, we just skipped analog. Like, so it's definitely completely different as opposed to talking to people who have started on analog and started in a completely different place in time and a completely different place in technology in the industry. So what are your thoughts on that? Cause I know you're writing a book that's uh, strongly history based as well.
4: Correct. Well, that's something that I worry about, you know, is that um, uh, I, I come th- from the analog mindset i think it's a useful way to understand and to be able to pick your way through the the myriad the sort of house of mirrors of digital where you know i'm making a, a record and and i'm trying to help people uh do things like make decisions and and uh and stick to them as opposed to pushing all the decisions ahead of them which happens a lot with making records so they go well here's my song and then they then there's a big uh disclaimer they play it. You know, I'm, I'm not sure the snare is the sample I'm going to use. And, and this I've got other takes of the vocal and, you know, I think that maybe I'm going to change this and the mix isn't quite right, you know, which is a way of saying it's not done, so please don't criticize me. But uh, so I try, I think there are some things that are useful about the analog mindset of make a decision, build on it, try to capture things, as, you know, if it's performance-based music, try to capture it as much as possible in real time, because we're trying, you know, we are basically... Um, alchemists right we're basically trying to create something noble out of just everyday objects and um and there is a certain kind of magic that happens when people play together and so i'm trying it's something i spend time both worrying and thinking about it's like how do i connect people who are used to making music by um by building it one piece at a time you know uh, sort of uh, cre- created or uh, constructed music as opposed to performed music, and there that's an interesting gap. You know, I, I think about people who become successful musicians and they've never sat in front of an audience. Mm. You know, uh, and they haven't schlepped amps up and down stairs or driven over all night in a you know or sat in a, mm-hmm. a, a sad and crappy uh, diners, which is part of the fun for me. I mean, because Honestly, when we talk about stories, uh, that's what I'm really in it for. Right? I love the stories and the experiences. But uh, so this is something that I'm thinking a lot about: is how do you connect that digital experience with the experiences that we have, and and not just be you know oh in my day blah blah blah, and or oh, you're doing it wrong or whatever. I mean, we're just trying to give them a, a a way of thinking about it that will hopefully help them.
1: I have one weird sound question. Go so ahead. you've heard. And used so many analog pieces of gear. Can you literally hear the difference of plugins versions of them?
4: Sometimes, I think.
1: Like in the feel of it or like the yeah. coloration or. Are you discouraged by that? Because sometimes I think when you're teaching the history of especially those kind of items, you're Mm -hmm. describing it in a color or a warmth or what you're doing to the sound, as opposed to the digital side where um, you're not really create. It's already created for you, you know. Mm -hmm. So the variables might be off. But can you discern differences between a plugin and a and a rack unit?
4: I'll I'll say it this way: I like to think I can. <laughs> uh, this is something I've been spending a lot of time uh thinking about. At the last national AES conference, I did a whole hour about the difference between modeling microphones and so-called real microphones. Right. Um and we're in an interesting place at blackbird because we have all the gear. Everything. Right? We have just about everything that's ever been made. That is the so-called real stuff, the hardware stuff. Um and so we're in an interesting place to be able to examine the difference between the the plug-in version and the and the real version and you know it's something that uh, you probably don't have enough time for me to talk about all the the uh, <laughs> the aspects of it but you know the so let me try and make it shorter the I do feel as though there's certain things especially that um, feel different notice I didn't say sound different uh, I still feel as though there's something about a fairchild or a similar device that doesn't feel the same. And I think it's just difficult to deal with, to uh, recreate an amplifier that's changing its gain and has different amounts of distortion at different frequencies while it's doing it. It's practically miraculous that you could get close. And it's still early days, right? Analog is a mature technology, it's 130 140 years old. So how long have we had plugins, you know, and what and how they're not going to get worse. So, uh, so there's that. Um, also, uh, you know, being here, I'm in a position to say, you know, there's a lot of this sort of grumpy old, like, oh, you could get this supposed U47 clone and it's not like a real 47 and you go really, which 47, because we've got 50 of them here and they all sound different. So Mm. can I hear the difference between the the microphones? Definitely. Can I hear the difference between the microphone and the plugin? Yeah. Are they all useful? Totally. And of course, to some extent, you know, the idea of like, oh, here's this, uh, 1176 it came with my free and i have an unlimited number of automated ones in my daw or i can spend three thousand dollars and buy hardware the the comparison is skewed uh anyway so i mean uh you can make let i'm very happy that um so many there, there's so much more widespread access to the tools it's in a way it's too bad that we don't have excuses anymore, but I think at this point, we, <laughs> you know, we kind of don't have excuses. I mean, if, nope. if you can afford Pro Tools for 15 bucks a month or whatever it is, or $10 a month if you're a student, you have a hundred times or thousand times the tools that they used to make the records in the studios that I'm writing about in the 50s and 60s. Uh, you have you have access to, I mean, if you have GarageBand, you have access to stuff that people dreamed about 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and so it's just a matter of learning how to use it and how to use it. what makes you happy and how to translate it. So it's fun to go down all those rabbit holes. It's fun to obsess over the gear, but it's also interesting, uh, being, especially in a place here where we have all the gear that we can truthfully say to people that the gear doesn't make the music and it doesn't make the records. You can make a great record with a pile of SM-57s. You can make a terrible record with any amount of equipment. (laughs) (laughs)
1: The the research that you guys do along with the the education is um, unimaginable. That's so... That's Like, the research is almost fun to me to listen to now because it's telling me why I made a lot of decisions or or how I made a lot of decisions. Bad ones or good ones in either aspect, but... um, (laughs) I think the research hadn't been done and this will totally segue into the thing that I wanted to talk about is your book Great American Studios. So um did I get the title right?
4: Great American Recording Studios of the 1960s and 70s.
1: So taking that journey are are you getting more information than you even had when you like were doing that in the 60s and 70s? Yeah.
4: Yeah, I'm learning all sorts of things about techniques and history and um, you know it's such a amazing subject because that was in many ways i think there were two golden eras of audio and i think that was one of them although really in the 50s it was pretty amazing too once tape machines came but the 60s and 70s that was a a golden age and where studios were rare special you know gardens of delights and and especially the early part of this, <laughs> they were uh they were all different because you couldn't buy stuff off the shelf so they the, an engineer was a real engineer, they had a technician who would build a console out of parts. And so they really had sounds they had echo chambers and everybody's echo chambers sounded differently. So it was much more diverse. And you it was a time where you had regional music, you know, you could hear something on the radio and you'd know in 30 seconds if it was from England or Chicago or New Orleans or San Francisco. You know, and you could tell what studio it came out of, but by the sound of the echo, if you attuned to it so mm-hmm. uh, it's so i've learned it's a random. lot about the, all of that and of course i've gotten a lot of funny stories which is the main reason i'm into it <laughs> but and i've gotten to meet a lot of amazing people i wish i'd started on it 10 or 20 years ago um, because even though uh well we're losing a lot of the people who were around them luckily yep. i got to interview al schmidt and bruce swedeen and uh you know who made the michael jackson records and and so forth but uh there are a lot of people that were gone that I, I wish i'd had a chance to talk to so but that underscores the reason for doing a history if i were writing a medieval history i wouldn't have been able to talk to anybody <laughs> right you know and someday this the the history of that time when you know people listen to that stuff when we call it classic for a reason uh people are going to wonder want to know you know how are this these made and what kind of people did it and what were the surroundings right and and of course if you're nerds you also want to know like what kind of microphones do they have and if what how did they get the echo to sound like that so that's what i'm delving into the problem is i'm writing about every recording studio in north america for 20 years and i'm trying to fit it into one hundred thousand words and 250 photos (laughs) and it's just endless you know i could spend a year researching one studio and talking to everybody who's still there and uh, so it's 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 really been hard and with my uh, proclivity for diving down rabbit holes (laughs) <laughs> it's just it's it's uh it's been a, a so far kind of failed exercise in self restraint, you know. It's just like I go down the the research rabbit hole and I talk to this person. I find out about this thing, and then I find out this person had the console, and then they modified it, and it just uh and then next thing I know, uh, it's three o'clock in the morning, and uh, you know, and I'm 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 four rabbit holes over, so
1: caffeine 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 yeah. well,
2: i mean i'm i, I i'll drink to that yeah <laughs> 100 understand because you know uh uh you know doing the some people who listen know i, I did the how we got loud project which is yeah. or not, not did working on um <laughs> history of live sound right which is a a a massive undertaking undertaking um you know my my goal is i want to make the ultimate history of live sound you know uh and and, um you know sam's got a peek at had had a peek at like what that looks like and um it's it's you know it's starting with hearing these stories and right and i mean your time frame goes even further back but i mean from from the live sound industry we're like we're at the we're at the cusp of where the let's face it all of the original pioneers are almost gone it just is what it is right we're we're at the the all of the major sound companies are just crossing that 50-year threshold sound image claire msi um uh, those, quite frankly only three left out of those of the originals um and um so that so you figure if someone started the company you know in their twenties they're in the fifty year you know so we're at the seventy eight year the eighty year markish range of the owners that type of thing so um yeah time is of the essence to to catch these people you know uh, and capture that's what I, that's what I've enjoyed the most is the stories um it's um yeah it's yeah the 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 stories are fascinating to see. Uh, I've talked about this before or, or, or an offer with like Sam and stuff is like, or others is um, I personally learned through the story. Right. So it's like, just get someone to talk about their experience and five different people or how many people are all going to pull their own thing out of that. And that's way more beautiful than here's where I set my threshold. Here's how I do my ratio. Here's how I do my attack and release and parallel, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh yeah, it's uh, the 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 story side of it, the the journey side of it is amazing.
3: So, Mark, I've got to ask: Is there anything that you've been learning about the history about those studios that has made you change anything you're doing in your process, your mindset, or what? What have you learned that's kind of making you continually grow?
4: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I think it's reinforced the things that I've been interested in, uh, and it it shows how much uh, everything is affected by personality. Like mm-hmm. the studios were really reflections of the personalities of the people that built them. And they had, and you know, one of the things that I say, this doesn't really get your question, but it's a funny point is that I think one of the things that made the recording of those that, <laughs> that time so interesting, and extreme is that you had a lot of lunatics. <laughs> there were a lot of just kind of crazy out of control pirates, characters. You know, yeah. I mean, there, there, there was the whole corporate, you know, label side of it, but there was also just these kind of buccaneer types who would put a, you know, get a, a tape machine out of a radio station, put it in a, in a radiator shop and, and invent rock and roll as Sam Phillips did earlier. I mean, that's a simplification, but there were a lot of um, real eccentrics and lunatics. And that's something that I, I hope I, I sort of watched my, the generation of my students to see you know, are are we going to have people that are really going to stick out, that are really going to just change the world and be and do radical things? Because it, there was a lot of extremity in those times, and people were doing extreme stuff, and it was an extreme time. I mean, if you think about the Vietnam War, I mean, it wasn't you know none of this existed in a in a vacuum. So you had a civil rights struggle going on, you had the Vietnam War, you had just massive change in the world, and of course the music reflects that. Um, And the studio was really a subset of that. And uh, I hope that, you know, it's not like this time is devoid of change and and history. This is a a, a historic time. And I hope that people will reflect that and will also not be beaten down by it, but that that Mm. there are going to be people that are just going to be extreme and are going to go out and and change the world. Because we need it. You know, I mean, how long has it been since we had a musical revolution? Right. If you think about jazz coming in and changing the world landscape and rock and roll, changing not just music, but politics and fashion and everything, right? It really changed everything. And yeah, hip hop, you know, that was a, that was a big change, but that's, we're talking 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 40 right. years more. Um, so
1: I, new hope, metal, new yeah, metal. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Yeah.
4: Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but I, I, you know, I hope that, um, the kind of, uh, diluting that that the internet does you know the internet is amazing because everybody has access and they can hear anything they want but i hope that that kind of effect doesn't dilute uh people doing extreme stuff Mm. and and maybe just going in and changing the world because now people have the tools you don't have to get signed you don't need a million dollars to make a record right or or do any of this stuff so and i I, but are we going to hear
1: them you know and i think that's a a a thing with the plugins as well is like saturation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many people doing this in their basement, in their garage, at their home, making beats like just by guessing. And like it could be changing something crazy. And it's so saturated right now with all the social media and everybody connecting digitally. Uh, it'll be hard for that thing to, to jump at this point, I think.
4: I, I don't think so. I think what you're going to get is a tremendous number of people making music, and and they're doing it, and it makes them happy, and it doesn't matter if it's great or if it's commercial. Uh, and I look at that as touch football, right? They just go out and they play for the fun of it and the joy of it, and to do it. And if they have, if they and their five friends love it, uh, if anything, that's sort of the equivalent of being in a terrible band that plays at your high school, that hopefully right. nobody ever records it, right?
1: I'm, I'm still um, in that band,
4: but uh, me too. But but I think that. I think that we're in a time where there's, unlike any other, where greatness could be heard without having to be filtered through a corporate structure. Uh, and I also think that uh, we're in a time of, of multiple cultures. It's not a monoculture.
2: Yes. And so yes. if
4: if somebody's making their particular brand of whatever it is, I just heard of Nightcore the other day. I don't know what <laughs> Nightcore was. So if somebody's making Nightcore, whatever that is. It sounds amazing, right? And they, and they're the best person at doing that. The you know now they are. Here's a word I don't particularly care for, but they're enabled. They're they're able to reach uh, their community mm-hmm. and and possibly even you know make a living, uh, catering to people or not catering to, but serving people and and being a part of a community with people who nobody else may care about or anything. And somebody at a record company companies go, oh, look, their YouTube numbers aren't high enough. And look at their TikTok, whatever it is, you know. Um, but uh, this is something I would say to my students. If, if it's the 1970s or 80s and you've got four people in your town that like your band, then you're going to have to keep working your other job. But if you're in 2022 and you have four people in every town in the world that like your band, you have a viable yep. world and yep. you can form your own community and you could be immune from some bozo coming in, to, in with a cigar and telling you how you should wear your hair, or what kind yeah. of, that you need more cowbell or that, you, you know, check uh, out this deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly here. Sign this kid. Yeah. I'm gonna make I you a star.
2: The, um, a couple of the artists that I'm currently into have been for the last five, six years or whatever. They have mastered that indie mindset, you know, um, in that, uh, they, they realize that hey uh it's not about the quantity of people i can serve my music to it's okay who are the quantity right um and let me serve that quant or that community of people best and just lean into that and you can base your foundation off of that whether you can make it a viable or not you'll figure that out right but like if you can you know it's and and What's the result of that is is when you get to the Kickstart albums and all these things? Like you are, your fans, your you know, a community is so much more personally vested into that product when it they comes out. I mean the the um they do I mean like this this one artist I Own mean it. like I, I I kickstart their album every time I know for a fact I'm not getting that multicolor vinyl or whatever that I purchased two till two three years from now and that's okay right because I'm a part of the experience they update through the process right like that that four or five bands means more to me in my whole life than having to know these 20 bands that are played on the radio every day and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean that, um, and I think, you know, to your point is that the, um, I imagine talking to your students, uh, would be, Hey, you can be a part of that creation process. That's channeled, uh, effective has meaning. And it's not just, mm-hmm am I actually going to make money on this record deal? Mm-hmm.
4: Well, yeah, that, that's something that I've changed. Oh, sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. There's something that I've changed in my, in my business advice, you know, used to be because the model has changed. And so I think we used to be a little bit more of the, well, if you want to be in a studio world and you get an internship and you, you know, sweep the parking lot for free and then you work your way up and you become an assistant, blah, blah, blah. And really I've just taken more and more to encouraging people to do it themselves. I think the entrepreneurship way is like, if you're going to be sweeping parking lot, let it be your parking lot. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to put all your work, working hours and waking hours into something for free, it might as well be building something that's going to sustain you and your, and, and your people, you know. And generally then, um, it's, you get these two parallel things, which is now there's the entrepreneurship thing where it's essentially it's like your garden. But instead of just being able to feed the people around you, you just have a segmented market that some of your people are in Sri Lanka and some of your people are in Portugal you know uh, that you can serve uh, and then you know if something is meant to sort of be a mass product, then it can find that that machine sure. and then there's the other side of it because the which is kind of the return of the patronage system, like not just where the your patrons might be your fans or it might be. You know, a company or an advertiser or, or whatever. But it's it's a little bit back to that a corporation, you know, where they're they're going to support something that, that they love. But I think. I think there's there's a a way for something to, come forward and be, incredible and and uh, change the landscape, and it's really easy to say and it's really hard to do. Uh, It's just greatness. Uh, You know, our beloved leader John McBride says good is the enemy of great <laughs> um and you know the, the thing is it's great when everybody can make music It's and if, whether it's good or not or somebody likes it or not is immaterial if, if it if it's if they enjoy it you know better than sitting passively in taking in somebody else's work to do your own work but greatness and true excellence and true commitment and a true heart and a true vision and you know the, that moment of That flash of of genius is as rare as it's ever been. So we're just waiting for the next, or we're cultivating the next Leonardo da Vinci or Stevie Wonder. I mean, Mm. and uh, by the way, when people go, "Oh, music is so terrible now," and when I was a kid, we had Led Zeppelin and blah blah blah. I could say two words. I just say Jacob Collier. (laughs) Yeah, and then they just go, "Oh, okay, who's that?" (laughs) Or whatever. So anyway, hey, there's another dude.
2: Hey, Michael's hey. joining us.
3: What's up, Michael? Wow. Are you still going? Yeah. yeah we're yes. still going. Right, I'll just be quiet.
0: I'm just checking it out. Hi,
2: everybody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Hi, Michael. <laughs>
4: so, what were you going to say, Sam?
3: Well, I mean, I think it's interesting, and kind of going back to what you said about, you know, there is kind of room for everybody and kind of, you know, this competition doesn't help anyone, right? At the end of the day, you're standing on a pile of bones, but you know, I also think we're entering a time where there's so many different avenues of the music industry, right? Where 20, 30 years ago, sync didn't exist. So all your music for film and TV, that entire section of the industry is new and kind of is a world of its own. Uh, and I think it's really interesting because you're right. I mean, Jacob Collier is a perfect point, like just crazy things. And especially with the progression technology, you have Atmos um, and it's just really interesting to see the million different things everyone's doing right so at that to that point right what do you say to your students that are trying to find their lane hmm.
4: I, I present them with a lot of options I, I i encourage them to think about it uh and actually really spend so I, I say a lot of things so one of them i think that's useful like the first thing i say when we start talking about careers is something that most people don't Okay, most people would say, well, you got to get a business card, or you have to have an elevator pitch, or you have to blah, blah, blah. And the first thing I tell them is, you need to spend time dreaming. I, I don't think people usually give that as concrete business advice. Okay, you got to get serious, kid, and, you know, have something to fall back on, and all this, you know. Um, I think I tell them to, to spend, you know, you need to spend weeks or months or maybe even years. Dog. <laughs> <laughs> cute dog. Sorry, got distracted. Um they need to spend days, weeks, months, or years dreaming mm. uh, and 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 visualizing and cooking up something crazy, you know, or, cu- or cooking up something without any regards as to whether it's practical or not before they actually embark on it. Because that's when you're committed, you know, then if you go all in and say, but, you know, it doesn't cost any money to dream. And yet that's where it all comes from. Mm. And I think people way too often uh, and way too early, it, uh, you know, obviously, well, I think people way too often, way too early, start to think practically, like they give it one second, they go, you know, I'd really like to work in a studio, I'd really like to be a front house engineer, but everybody knows that you can't, you know, or for this band that I love or whatever, but everybody knows you can't, so I, I should do this, and then they get practical, and there's time for that, but you shouldn't kill that creative spark first. It's the same thing as with a song, Right. If you have an idea for a song, if then all of a sudden you go, is it too fast? Is this the wrong key? Uh, are, is, are people going to not like this? You go into the analytical mind, you lose the creative spark and it is the same creative process. So, um, that's part of it, but I've got a lot of other advice. It takes weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Um,
2: all right. So if you could define your legacy or how you'd want to be known, how would you define that?
4: Well, I have a joke. I made a joke slide. It was a tombstone and it had my name on it and it said he taught people how to wrap cables.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that, Not a bad legacy. That's
4: that's the thing that all my students remember. Like I see somebody and I Go Back to Champagne. <laughs> oh, I took your class in nineteen eighty-three. Or if I wasn't teaching eighty three in, in nineteen ninety. Oh great. Yeah, I still wrap my, you know, garden hose the way you taught me. Like, <laughs> oh great. Well, I'm glad to have a have a legacy there. I, I have no idea. You know, um, I I think a little bit of what I've talked about hopefully sticks with all these hundreds of people, thousands of people that I've taught, and yeah. I hope it helps them in some way. Uh, to you know, and I'll probably never know what I might have said that made a difference or not, and it doesn't matter. Uh, but if if uh, you know the ability, it's a it's a sacred occupation. You realize, right? It's a it's an incredible yeah. responsibility to get to influence somebody and, and hopefully help them to find uh, happiness in what they do and, and to further that in the world. Because every piece of music that somebody makes, <laughs> you know, is literally, I mean, music is, this all is gets really cosmic in Oprah, okay? But, yes, you know, I mean, music is, is literally... Oprah. Cosmic Oprah, it, it, music is literally energy and vibration. Yes. You know? Yes. And we're, uh, the, your PA is is spreading energy and vibration out there. But that's we have these things called transducers, right? That change energy of one kind to another. And so what what we're putting out there is, um, you know, is is an emotion and a way of thinking about life. And if you could, and and what we're hoping is that that resonates with somebody just the way anything would resonate in the world. And so hopefully the ability to say something that might have resonated with somebody and and help them uh, would be a great legacy. And then I think the other answer is hopefully this book. I mean, Massenberg, I called him when they offered me to write this book, which is a great honor. And uh, I know he always tells the truth and asked him, you know, what what do you think? And And he put me through the mill on it, which as he should, but but he did say, you know, this is your legacy, and I think that's probably true. But uh, that that'll be something that people can at least point to and go, yeah, here's that's the bozo who wrote the book with all the mistakes. In it. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I feel better knowing that thirty seven years of students are out in the world because of you now, and they got to listen to you in mm. class and out of class, and if they take an ounce of your theory and your projection with them that's 37 years of amazing people out in the world i feel better about that
4: well, i'd love to take credit for all of them <laughs> but you know except the ones except the ones who are in jail uh <laughs> you know i mean I, but I that's would, you know that's what teaching uh, can be we
2: hope it's amazing
3: wonderful
1: well, thank you for joining us tonight, Mark. We'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to do this again, man. There's so many other questions far yes. from one question and so many different aspects and angles. Uh, thank you for what you do. Appreciate it.
2: Yes, thank, thank you. Thank
4: you for what you're doing here and it's a great joy to get to talk with me.